Today on Happy Sad Confused, Paul Feig trades in comedy for a sexy new thriller with a simple favor. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Welcome to another edition of Happy Sad Confused. I'm Josh, you're you. Paul Feig is Paul Feig. He's also the director of the new film, A Simple Favor, which might seem like a change of pace in some ways for Paul Feig. This is not Bridesmaids. This is not The Heat. This is not Ghostbusters. This is... This is kind of more of Paul Feig does Gone Girl. This is a a sexy, twisty thriller uh, starring two of our favorites, Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively. Um, and it is uh, it'll keep you guessing. It's based on a book. I did not read the book. I knew nothing about it going in, and uh, I was thoroughly entertained. It does still have a bit of. I think the trailer like builds it as like from the the dark side of Paul Feig or the twisted mind of Paul Feig or something like that. And I think that applies. It, it's. It's not like he's left his comedic roots entirely behind. There is certainly a dose of, I think, dark comedy in this film, but um, but it's kind of mostly just like a great thriller. So I highly recommend it. It is out next September 14th, Friday, September 14th, in this bu- busy fall season that is upon us. Um, so many good movies coming, guys. I'm so excited. Uh, so this is this is the beginning of the season, and uh, this is a good one to start off with. And so thrilled to have Paul Feig on the show for the first time, actually. First time guest on Happy Sad Confused. He, of course, came dressed in his usual dapper attire, his, uh, his gorgeous suit. I felt like a heathen, as I normally do, but even more so around the likes of Paul Feig. Uh, and we had a great chat about the new film, about his career, about the fact that, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things about Paul Feig when you dig into the career, even prior to Freaks and Geeks, which I think is where he came to prominence, where most of us sort of came to learn about Paul Feig, that that show that he created, and uh, um, it was helped birthed by, by Judd Apatow, but it was really Paul Feig's story uh, derived from his experiences in high school. But prior to that, Paul Feig was maybe a thriving actor is too strong a word, but he was, he was a working actor. He was working in many sitcoms and, and kind of doing fine and making a living and had directed a film actually. Uh, and then freaks and geeks kind of changed things and elevated him, uh, gave him a boost. And then it took, but then it took another little while, right? It was another decade before bridesmaids. So, uh, it hasn't always been, you know, one straight, line to the top for Paul Feig, but Hey, it's never a straight line to the top for any of us. Right. So, um, but he's, he's such a, a, a brilliant mind, a, a sharp mind and someone that, uh, I really admire for uh, many reasons not to, not the least of which is the way he's, he's championing, um, so many great, um, actresses out there. You look at his work obviously on bridesmaids, which, uh, helped boost Melissa McCarthy's career. And then he did the Melissa McCarthy, Sandra Bullock film, the heat and ghostbusters. And now this, and he's just, um, he's made no bones about it. He loves writing for women. He loves directing women. He loves championing women. Uh, and I think he will continue on that path, uh, in the years to come. So anyway, that's the conversation with Paul Feig. Uh, as I mentioned, we are in the fall, happy fall. Hope you guys had a good labor day. Uh, and I am off, very soon to a very big film festival, one I've gone to for the last decade, the Toronto International Film Festival. We call it TIFF. I'll be seeing a lot of good movies out there. Hopefully not so many bad movies. This is what I love about TIFF. TIFF, the percentage of good movies, it's high. Sundance, I've said for I've said in years past, you can go a year or two at Sundance and not see one really good movie. At Toronto, if you're not seeing good movies, 
three quarters of the time you're doing something wrong because all the good stuff goes there. It is kind of the launching pad for all the big uh, Oscar contenders. Uh, and I certainly will hopefully see uh, the new film from Damien Chazelle, First Man, Bradley Cooper's directing debut, A Star is Born. Um, the, the list is too long. So if you are excited to follow along uh, with me, uh, at the Toronto Film Festival, simply follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'll be detailing all my exploits there. Joshua Horowitz is my handle. And yes, I'll be there with a great crew from MTV uh, talking to a great many people. I think we have like, I don't know, somewhere between 15 and 20 casts already booked. Uh, a lot of really uh, high caliber talent that I'm, I'm super psyched to talk to. I don't want to jinx anything cause you never know, but stay tuned on my Twitter feed, et cetera. I'll send out the links as they come out or just go to MTV's and MTV News's YouTube page. And, um, we'll be putting all the conversations up there. Uh, so that's Tiff. Follow along. If you can't get out to Toronto, follow me. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy this conversation with Paul Feig. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Happy, Say, Confused on iTunes. Spread the good word. And uh, enjoy this chat with uh, the comic, the darkly comic mind that is Paul Feig's. Mr. Paul Feig has entered the office. Hey, Paul. Hi, Josh. How are you? It's good to see you, man. It's great to see you. Uh, congratulations on the new film. We're going to talk a lot about A Simple Favor coming soon to theater. A theater, theater near you. Yes, many, many theaters near you. Hopefully. Well, we'll um, see. Uh, <laughs> uh, no superhero film to compete with. You give give <laughs> yeah, this movie but, some love. Well, Predator. So don't go see Predator. You've seen that already. Come on. <laughs> exactly. How, How many, many Predators can you watch? I was just going to say. <laughs> That's right, really. Um, so we were saying, uh, as we take this, we are uh, hours after the insanity that was the MTV Video Music Awards, yes. where your lovely two stars were presenting. Yeah, um, I was there. I, I was. There. I got to. I got there early and waited for them. So I got. I heard a lot of uh, sir. Can you, you got to move? You guys got to move back. You got. You cannot stand here. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Can I be here? Sir, you have to move. So yeah. How does your sartorial um, uh, demeanor fit into the VMAs? It buys uh, me nothing. <laughs> literally, it's actually worse because I'm wearing a you know a double breasted suit and tie, so I just look like somebody's douchey lawyer, so there's just like, dude, get out of the way. <laughs> Do you enjoy, though, I mean, we were talking the uniqueness of MTV's award shows in particular, which obviously I'm, I'm not a stranger to myself, um, but do you get a kick out of that kind of oh, yeah. scene? You can, I mean, anytime every everybody like puts on the dog, if I may sound like somebody's grandpa, you know, and really like just gets completely dressed up, I'm, I'm fascinated by fashion and style. Yeah. You know, I, obviously I wear three-piece suits and all that. I'm very, very traditional styling but I'm just like I go like oh that must be a style now what that person walked out of the car and that looks insane to me but I but I I anytime somebody has a style that's all I ever ask I right. think the biggest sin you can you can commit is just to have no style to, to dress yeah so you don't get arrested walking down the street right well the, Paul did walk in today wearing the meat dress from Lady Gaga well and you which know, is... it was on sale it's a little ripe but I uh... I was gonna say I think it's turned well it, it, it's sun-dried we call it I feel, I'm convinced that uh 
I mean, uh, that Anna is destined to host the Oscars. Like, Anna oh, is God. a... She's a powerhouse. She's a powerhouse. Yeah, it's crazy. And, and, and then Blake's this crazy powerhouse. Too. It, it, it's nuts. I mean, Anna, you know, Anna's just got... I mean, she there's you know, she's an, she's an EGOT, you know, waiting to happen. Oh, yeah. She, she can just hold every stage and, and everything. And she's so much fun to work with. And she's so funny. And she's really acerbic uh, in a way you would not expect if right. you're an Anna Kendrick fan. <laughs> but it's hilarious and delightful. She can kind of get away with it, though, right? Like, totally. She can be like the most, yes, like a Serbic uh, cutting remark and then that sweet face. Yeah. It just somehow she can sell it. So it's with a smile and kind of a laugh. <laughs> and you're like, I think you just burned me, but I'm utterly charmed you by the burn. to the core and yet I'm okay with it. <laughs> That's right, really. <laughs> Did you ever spend time like in your many travels through showbiz doing like the award show like writing gig? Like did you ever have to do that kind of no, thing? No, of course I have avoided that. Uh, Judd Apatow, my, my old partner, yeah. uh, he, he did tons, tons of it and wrote for comedians and stuff. I'm not a good joke writer. Like, I'm a good dialogue joke writer, but right. like standing in front of a microphone, like, here's my, you know, here's a gag. I'm lousy at it. And, and you know, I was a stand up comedian for years, right. but my whole gig was kind of complaining about my life and telling stories and stuff like that. Did, uh, yeah, because that host banter, I mean, that or the or the presenter banter is oh, like, yeah. it, that is the most thankless of tasks totally. I can imagine. But, you know, but it's somebody who can write jokes. Yeah. I mean, like a Mitch Hedberg or whatever, you know, where you're mm -hmm. just like, oh my God, like, how does your brain think? I, I love that. And I, I have lots of friends who are amazing joke writers. And I'm I was just like, hey, write me a joke. Right. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because, like, you know, you were talking about, you know, appreciating the, um, the bizarreness and the fat and the amazing fashion on, on a carpet. You're, you strike me as somebody that that appreciates all the trappings of show business. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. How do you not love showbiz? I mean, right. The, <clears throat> it's. I, maybe it's just because you, as you get into it later. Although I've been, I feel like I've been in it my whole whole life, just not successful. Um, <laughs> but anybody who gets jaded about showbiz, it's like you just go, oh come on, you know, look how lucky we are to you be know. in this. And look, there's plenty of times. Even last night, I was like, oh god, the VMAs. Do I really? But it's more just because I thought I was going to get yelled at and told to move around. <laughs> but it's 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 cool, and I love the trappings of it, yeah. and just it's. It's glamorous, and, and I just I I want to kind of bring as much glamour back to showbiz as I can because, you know, there was such especially comedy tends to be so we got to be so down to earth and stuff, yeah. you know. And look, I love David Spade and and you know and all those guys, but there was that period like he, he and like Sandler and and Farley would go on the Tonight Show wearing like literally like a ripped up T shirt and their right. baseball caps. Like fellas, come on, well, I think you can step it up. Well, even and we can apply this when we, as we start to get into a simple favor and and, and all your directing work, you know, the old adage of like, um, most, um, film, uh, uh, comedic films are shot pretty rudimentary, not mm -hmm. much style to yeah. it. Right. And yeah. obviously a simple favor has a ton of style. Mm -hmm. Uh, all your films do. And, um, the knock has been, I feel, I feel like the old conventional wisdom was like, don't detract from the joke, just let the joke play, and yeah. don't worry about the fancy camera moves. Yeah, whatever. it was always yeah, like brightly lit, flat lit. Yeah. So this, and I don't, I never buy into that. You know, look, my movies run the gamut between between being sort of functional to being much more stylish. It just depends on the genre you're shooting, yeah. really. But also, you know, it's so much about the the verbal joke too. And so I, you know, a lot of my movies have a lot of improv and ad libs and stuff. So a lot of times you kind of just cross shoot. It's meaning you're shooting both people at the same time. Right. So you have a lot there. But it's like whenever we're not doing that, it's like let's try to move the camera. Let's try to have some fun with yeah. it and just not make it so flat. Before we move off of the awards conversation, I'm just curious because you, you know, you went through that obviously in particular with bridesmaids, uh, mm. which was an unexpected, lovely surprise. I would think. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's, 
uh, memories of that. I mean, that got the, the screenplay nomination. Melissa got the nomination. Mm-hmm. Um, was it? I mean, it, I can't, I'm trying to remember back then. Was there? Were we up to the ten nominees at that point? Was there talk that like bridesmaids could get into picture? Why too? do I feel like we? I think it might have been the first year the ten nominees. I feel like so too. Yeah. It, it, I mean, the, the, my big lesson from that was, you know, look, I went to film school. You know, we all serious filmmakers. Yeah. Well, although I made goofy movies in film school anyway. But it, it's, it, you know. Everybody's like, we want to win awards. And so, and you can go down to the rabbit hole as a filmmaker going like, well, what, what could put me in award contention? And, you know, by the time I got to Bridesmaids, it's like, let's just entertain an audience. And that's all we thought. And suddenly we got nominated for two Oscars. There's a lesson there. It was the lesson. (laughs) It was just like, just make something that you think audiences are going to like. And if the kudos come, they come. And if they don't, who cares? You know, you entertain an audience. Because I always say, you know, so many best picture movies, you'll go, you know, how many times did you watch that versus how many times did you watch some goofy comedy? You know, and you go to that 20 times because it makes you feel happy. I'd rather have the one you watch 20 times than the one you go, yeah, I saw that, but I don't want to watch it again, but it won an award. What's your take on the, the recent breaking news about this popular film? Uh, I'm torn on that because it's funny. Cause I, I've actually hadn't met with the, with the um, Academy a few years ago about trying to get a, a best comedy category because you know because I thought you know the way the Golden Globes does it but then then I went like oh wait no it what happens is there's no real criteria for it and so like the Golden Globes you know Spy got beat by The Martian great movie I love The Martian not exactly the funniest movie in the world but what happens is then anybody can go like oh we had a joke in there so now we're a comedy and I think with the popular movie they they all swarm towards the one they think is going to be easier to win so I just don't know how they're going to how they're going to designate what a popular movie is it's also I mean mean, it is is, you know you're well aware of this I know but like if you look back at like we talk about sort of the certain kind of genres that are relegated to kind of uh, the side for for awards consideration especially Oscars and we talk about genre films like sci-fi or fantasy please comedies are like way behind that we we, you know we've gotten like (laughs) you know Lord of the Rings etc in there but like if you really look back and I looked back yesterday at best picture winners yeah Outside of, like, if you go maybe, like, Cone Brothers comedies. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But, like, for kind of a, a traditional comedy, I mean... It was like Annie, Annie Hall. Hall. Yeah, yeah, Annie Hall. And some people will say Shakespeare in Love, which was right. light entertainment. It wasn't a comedy comedy, really. Yeah. I do love that movie. But, um, no, it's just... Here's why. Here's why, Jeff. <laughs> let, <laughs> Uncle Paul, let Uncle yes, Paul tell exactly. you. Um, if you do comedy right, comedy looks really easy. Right. Because it has to be effortless. If it's not, it's what we call sweaty, and that's bad comedy. But with dramas and all these other things, you know, you just pile on the cool shots and the thing, and everybody's emoting and this and that, and you can really go for it in a a very showy way. Look, it has to be affecting, and obviously we're very affected by those movies, too. But we're affected by comedies. It's when I, I sum it up this way. Steve Carell never won an Emmy for The Office. Right. Never, because he made it look easy. And I have people go like, well, yeah, he doesn't deserve it. He just shows up and, and acts goofy. And you're like, are you kidding me? You know how hard this guy worked yep. to make that character, which is nothing like him in real life. But again, you know, I'd rather have a comedy that looked easy and everybody has fun right. than that's some sweaty comedy that people go, wow, look how hard they worked. Right. People want to know about, and with all due respect to Daniel Day-Lewis, that wait, he cobbled for a year to learn how to be the shoe guy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, I love him, but like, right, exactly. you know, there's room for everything to be acknowledged. Um, let, let's talk about your uh, uh, 
delightful new film. And delightful is maybe the wrong adjective, but, I'll it, take is, it. <laughs> but, it, but it is. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it, and it's. Um, I think many people are, think it's you know probably unexpected given your resume. But then again, you dig into your resume. For those that yeah. don't know, like it's actually kind of all over the place in the best possible way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say like this movie, like by the end you'll go like, oh yeah, that's one of his movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So this one, like, and I remember when I, I saw you guys back in, in Vegas for CinemaCon, whatever, yeah. and the uh, and in the early trailers, I think the the gift and the challenge of something like this clearly is its uniqueness. Yeah, and 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 where it fits in the box of a genre, clearly. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure those are conversations that went back, I assume, to like your very first conversations about the film. Well, I mean, for me, if you look at my movies, they're all genre movies. Right. You know, wedding movie, buddy cop comedy, spy, th yeah. you know, thing, uh, sci-fi. And um, so I just love playing in genres. That's all I kind of care about because I like to have a, a set of rules and tropes that everybody knows, and then you can play with them. Right. And you can subvert them, and sometimes it's just by, you know, how you cast. Sometimes it's by the twists and turns you, you put in, and that's how we can make it funny. But, you know, I love the thriller genre. It's kind of my, sort of my favorite thing to watch. That's all I watch. I, all I read are, like, Patricia Highsmith novels, mm -hmm. and that. so I love that stuff. And so... I always want to make sure that I am first and foremost in service of the genre itself. Right. You know, spy. I want to make sure I had a real spy movie with a real spy plot, but then we put extreme characters in it mm -hmm. and have fun with how they deal with the serious way we're taking the story. Right. And that's what this is, too. It's um, That's you know, also, for the, what it's worth, that's also how the original Ghostbusters and your, your Ghostbusters worked. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was, you were in kind of like, it played as just as well in some ways mm -hmm. as a great kind of fantasy uh, action movie. Yeah. You, you, movie, you, know. you have to plot everything out like it's a drama. Obviously, my movies are, are dramas that are funny. Right. You know, because that's how you, you know, if you don't have the stakes and the movement that way and the investment in the characters and their emotional arcs to pay stuff off, you don't have a movie. Yeah. You know, you know, one of the great comedies of all time was Mr. Hulot's Holiday. Mm -hmm. And the very thing, it comes up, this Jacques Tati movie, and it comes up at the beginning and says, there is no story to this movie. It's just, and even though I think it's brilliant, it feels like the longest movie you've ever watched in your life. And it's, I think it's like an hour and 15 minutes long, but it's just all gags. Brilliant gags, mm -hmm. but it's like that was the moment I go like, oh god, you got to have a story too, um, and yeah. You know, so when, when this one came to my office, it was basically it was sent to us by Fox Two Thousand to produce uh, because it, it was a book. Uh, you know, uh, Simple Favor was a book that had a big bidding war for it, uh -huh. and Fox got it, and then they hired Jessica Scharzer, great writer Jessica Scharzer, to take it and, and adapt it. So when it came to me, I hadn't read the book; it was just the, the script. Right. So they yeah they sent that said, like, this is crazy. It's a comedy. Is it a drama? We don't know what it is. You produce it and figure it out. So I read it and was like, I love it so much because this is the thriller I've been looking for. I'll direct it. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so, but what I saw in it was the potential for it to be to have funny elements and it's all because of the characters. Right. And it was really Anna's character. Page one, here's this earnest little mom who has a sad little vlog, mommy vlog that she does that has like, you know, 200 followers and she's, you know, giving advice, her heart out right. doing this and all the other parents think she's a nerd and don't like her. They think she's too trying too hard. And I was just like, that's the lead character of every one of my movies. You know, <laughs> it's some nerdy person who's undervalued and doesn't know their place in the world and has lost their confidence and then here comes this, you know, great adventure for her to, you know, repair herself with. It's also maybe 
correct me if I'm wrong, probably the first of your films that could have the adjective of, of sexy associated to it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I usually steer away because I hate shooting sex scenes. It's... I was going to say, so like as like a self-proclaimed kind of late bloomer in the sexual realm. Yes. How did it? Uh, how how is it to uh, direct a, a sex scene in a film? Uh, I don't enjoy it. Um, I, I got it, when I was a TV director, I had a few that I had to do, especially on Weeds. I had to shoot like porno scenes <laughs> once, and I was just like, oh my god. So I literally said to Genji Cohen, I said like, if, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to hire porn actors. You're not going to make me hire some poor actress and like make her pretend like she's a porn star, you know. So it was the greatest thing though, because like these, you know, three porn stars showed up and they they acted and they were fine. And then it came time we had to shoot like this, you know, simulation, quote unquote, of a porn scene. And I was like, I said, guys, I've never been less comfortable in my life. Please tell me how you do it. Oh, like, sure. Well, should she get behind me and then I'd be down on my knees? I was like, awesome and roll. <laughs> so, so on so, this one, though. So on this one, yes. Uh, so <laughs> couldn't hire porn star. No, no. This, but again, I, I've my whole life when I go to a movie and there's a sex scene. If I don't real, if I don't understand why it's in, right. then I'm like, oh, why am I watching this? You that know? takes you out of it because you're, you're thinking about everything else. Like, yeah, I feel bad for the actors. Yes. <laughs> I think there's like a guy in shorts standing like a you know foot away, holding a boom pole, totally. staring, you know, and they're like, get off the set, everybody else. Um, so. It, if it makes me go, okay, if we're going to do a sex scene, it has to be for a reason. It has to be a dramatic reason for yeah. it. And so that kind of gets me through it. You will notice when you see my movies, my sex scenes are always almost basically one shot that starts wide in the side. And as things start to happen, I'm slowly, slowly pushing it on my actor's face. And then it ends on the actor's face. And that's literally how I shoot all my sex scenes. Classic feek sex scene. So when, you, when, you, when it starts, just know that camera's going to be pushing in. Does, um, we were talking about, uh, you know, our, our mutual love for, I mean, both Blake and, and Anna. But it strikes yes. me in particular with, like, Anna, like, she seems so right for your sensibilities. Had you ever discussed working with her before? Like, I had just always wanted to work with yeah. her, but just the opportunity never arose or the project never felt right. right. But I mean, honestly, when I read this one, it was just like, oh God, this could be the, you know, this could be for her. And then my producing partner, Jesse Henderson, you know, said like, Anna, you got to get Anna for this. So it, it just, it all... It was finally like, oh, thank God, because this it's a really hard role, but she's got to be funny and nerdy, but then like kind of cool. But all, you always have to have, you know, you have to be invested in her and, yeah. and have empathy for her. Uh, and she just, I mean, she's so deft at doing that. And what's so fun about her is she's a great physical comedian, yes. you know, because we, this is not a movie where we did tons of improv because right. the script was so tight, but we were still able to play a little bit. What we were able to really play with is just like, try it a little more uncomfortable this time. Try her where she's really, you know, like she can't breathe in the dress. Try right. And my editor always says like, he, like she's all elbows. And it's the funniest thing, like the way she kind of flaps her arm arms around of this character, it just cracks me up. I, I would think, I mean, you're kind of alluding to something that I, was, I always think of like when, I, when I think of the thriller genre. It's one of those genres that, like, I would imagine as a director, like, you never feel like more of a director than when you're directing, like, a thriller <laughs> or maybe a horror film. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean? Like, the, the, those films where 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 you set up the shot, where yeah. you cut, where it, it, that you are telling the audience how to feel, what to what how to build suspense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you think of our greatest filmmakers. You think of you know, you think about the Hitchcocks and the Spielbergs yeah. and all those guys that yeah. could um, know how to play an audience in in a good way. Hopefully, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's you know, my when I was in film school, I went to USC film school. My 
one teacher, I forget which one it was, kind of summed up the best. He said, literally, because of the way that you, you know, with the focal lengths and all this stuff, you're literally kind of grabbing the back of the audience's head and just going, look at this, yep. look at this, look at this. And that's what, you know, when you rack focus, that's literally me manipulating you into looking at something, whether you wanted to look at it or not. Yeah. And that's what's so fun. And then, yeah, on top of it, the camera angles and, and how we move the camera. And then I was, you know, I was really lucky because, um, you know, I always work with Bob Yeoman who shoots all of Wes Anderson's movies, who I love. And we just have such a great partnership, but he wasn't available for this. And John Schwartzman, who shot all of Michael Bay's early movies and shot like Spider-Man and all these things, he, we went to film school together, like I said, and uh, he was available. Amazing. So he came in and shot it. And we was just, we were able to just kind of play with a different style. Yeah. And, um, and it was a blast. You know, and it was also, yeah, it's just, it's, then you, yeah, you really do feel like a filmmaker. I don't know. I feel like a filmmaker all whenever yeah. I'm making a movie, but this, it was extra fun. I felt a little like Hitchcock. <laughs> Did, um, so, and needless to say, this also continues something that you always seem to gravitate towards, which is explorations of female uh, friendships. Mm -hmm. um, and from what I gather, and you've, you know, you've talked about this at length, um, you know, I mean, growing up, like, were you surrounded? You were surrounded more by women and mm -hmm. in, in friend groups, et cetera, than men. Yeah. You felt more comfortable in that. Yeah, I was an only child, right. and it's close with my mom. The family next door to me were eight kids. Six of them were girls. They're all my pals. And then right. in school, I had a lot of bullies, so I would hang out with girls or my other fellow nerds, and just that was always my group. And I've just always felt more comfortable with women because I'm not into sports and I'm not into like, you know, name calling and punching, <laughs> all that other stuff that guys seem to like to do. So, so how did how did them like the comedy world treat you because that is you know the stereotype of that is it's a predominantly male and and an aggressively male often yeah uh, skewing yeah. world yeah well, I, I was a stand-up for five years from 85 to 90 and i enjoyed it but um i had a real hard time it was basically being on the road is what drove me out of stand-up mm. because what happens is you know you get hired by a club for a week at a time and they fly you into whatever city and there's an opener a middle and a headliner uh, you know three acts on the on the on the bill and what they would always do is they have what they call the comedy condo which was like they owned a condo the, the club and they put you in there so you're in there with two other dudes, you know, in your, you have your own rooms, but basically you have the common area of the kitchen and the living room. And so one week it would be the greatest thing ever. You'd be out with a bunch of nerdy friends, you know, nerdy right. comics and you're just having so much fun. And then the next week you'd be out with two guys who all they want to do is get laid, bring waitresses back to the part. And you're just like, Oh, it was such a nightmare. <laughs> and I just, I couldn't, it was like literally spin the wheel on, is your next week going to be fun or yeah. a nightmare? And I, and it, more and more nightmares started happening and I was just like, forget it. No, you're like flashing me back to my own childhood because I think we relate in this level too. Like I think back to like going to sleepaway camp, and oh, like hunks of gut. It was just like it. not oh. what my constitution was made for. I, I, I ruled in Cub Scouts because my mom was the den mother, so I loved that. That was really fun. And then I joined Boy Scouts, mm. and the I I I went uh, to a Boy Scout jamboree. The first thing I did, and I got hazed so many times that I quit Boy Scouts. <laughs> I woke up once, my my sleeping bag was soaked, and there was a dude standing over. He just peed no. on my sleeping bag. He's like, that's not even hazing. That's just like criminal. That's, that's a federal offense. Yeah. The um, you know, usually I have to ask folks like, what were you like in high school? Luckily, we have like eighteen hours of television that basically sums <laughs> yeah. up, I guess, what you, you were like. Saw it, right? <laughs> I mean, do, do you feel like that, that does stand as a good marker of at least a good 
uh, approximation of what you went through in yeah. high school. Yeah, Gigs I mean, they, of course. I, that's why I'm so proud of that show. And that's why, you know, so many people kind of want, you know, wish there was more or they want us to bring it back. I'm like, you know what? I kind of said everything I wanted to say about high school with it. And we ended it in a nice, positive way where, like, everybody goes off in a different direction and all that. But, yeah, I mean, honestly, one of the many motivations for doing that show is I kind of wanted to, like, have something that you could hand to a kid about to go to high school and go, like, here's what to expect. Right. Don't get upset. Don't try to hurt yourself or whatever. It's going to be terrible. <laughs> you'll find your friends. You'll come out stronger. And the people that are mean to you will hopefully all, you know, go on to much lesser <laughs> things. Although sometimes they win, I guess. Well, it, it, it's interesting, too. I mean, that show, Stan, I watched that documentary recently, by the way, which was amazing. unbelievable. Yeah, Brent Hodge, shout out to him. He did job. a great job. Truly. Uh, I, I'm sure it's available somewhere. <laughs> this like 90-minute Freaks and Geeks stock. Yeah. Seek it out if you can. Yeah. But, um, I mean, so much is striking about that show. I mean, the, obviously the casting and the launching pad for so many talented actors. Was that something that you and Judd always kind of like had a aptitude in? I mean, I guess this was like a big testing ground for you. You had never done Yeah, I was like just an that. actor before that, yeah. But like, do you feel, because you, you know, you're still able to kind of launch careers and have and, and, and morphed some careers in your future films. Mm -hmm. Like, what are you looking for when you're looking at an unknown actor? Like, what are you, is there, is there a common denominator yeah, I mean, you know, it depends what we're casting them for. You know, I, I like just finding unexpected people, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, if you look at, at, at Freaks and Geeks, you know, we had everybody was, you know, we we're looking for the various roles that were written. But when we did this open casting call up in Vancouver, um, Lee Shepard, Stephen Lee Shepard came in, who ended up playing Harris, right. you know, the geek guru on the show. And he was just this, you know, I went into this room. We had way too many people showed up and yeah. I was like, everybody's going to read. Like the first 10 people came in, they're terrible. I was like, okay, I got to do some sort of weeding here. <laughs> so I just went in and looked around and I saw this mop of hair in the corner, like reading a book. And I uh, go, Hey, do you want to read? Cause he just had such a great look. Yeah. And, was, and he's like, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And he came in, he just took these sides and just kind of read them very matter of fact. And Judd and I were just like, Oh my God, you know, we have, so we like created that character for him. And then I had to write all these letters to the U S government about why no actor in all of America <laughs> we searched could 10, possibly be as good as this guy. So I literally like, he's like Robert De Niro showed up from Canada, um, just to get a miss visa <laughs> and you know but but that's the kind of thing i love yeah. as far as you go like this is just somebody that nobody else would cast that that nobody else would think to use but then like on our new movie uh, simple favor henry golding having you quite know, a moment clearly a oh huge my God. moment yeah. and so deserved but you know john chu gets all the credit for henry because he discovered him because henry was like a travel show host yeah. but if you watch the reel of his travel show it's he's the most charismatic right. guy you've ever seen in your life but for me you know it was still you know i still had i still had to kind of you know, talk the studio into here's a guy who nobody knows and they don't know how, how crazy rich Asians is going to come out. Sure. It came out a hugely great, but you know, but I like, that's like catnip for me. Cause like, like, look at this guy. And he's like, to me, he's like Cary Grant or something. And I met him and I, he was so charming and all that. So it's just what you all, you just have to kind of go like, I just see this person. And then it's just how hard are you willing to fight to kind of make other people see it? Well, and then obviously in a different way, I mean, established actors that you, uh, Expose in a different way, um, you know, Statham, right? Like unbelievable, like Hemsworth. Those two stand out, of course. Yeah. Uh, um, like, did it take uh, convincing uh, to like get Jason to kind of commit to what he needed to for Spy? <laughs> well, no, it was it was he he's, he's first of all he's the greatest guy 
guy in the world. I love that man so much. But he, I'm a huge, my wife and I are just giant Statham fans. We watch every single one of his movies, including the Uwe Bowl one. <laughs> like, I'm committed. We are down. Wait, that was like Dragon Siege or no, like one of those Something kind of, of the Kings. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what oh, you're talking yeah, about. Oh, yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> um, and so one of the perks of like when you your career is going okay is you can have general meetings right. with stars. And so uh, one day I was just like, oh. I wonder if I could meet Jason Statham. <laughs> so like set up a meeting with Jason Statham. But then I was completely nervous because like what if Jason's the real Jason Statham shows up and like and he punches you like you know the the, the transporter <laughs> throws me blows a hole in my uh, in my my glass pool and I fall pees all over your sleeping bag. Wait, we're back. Yeah, oh no, it was really Jason Statham. I can't believe it. Um, but he came in and he, I just loved him. He was so charming and yeah. funny and all this. And so I was it's a Jason. I want to put you in something I want I'm going to put you in a movie I swear as God is my witness he's like yeah okay sure 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 so then when I was writing spy it's just like wait this is it this because I was writing this role of this rival spy yeah. and everybody assumed when they read the script they were like oh so oh Will Ferrell's gonna play this I said no 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 I want Jason Statham to play this role so I contact <laughs> I sent it to his, his agent and the agent called him and said like look he's nervous about this because he doesn't you know it's it's taking a big swing he yeah. said but Everybody always tells him they're going to write a part for him, and they never do. And he really re- appreciates that you did that. And so he's thinking about it. So I talked to him a bunch, and um, and then he, yeah, he was in. He agreed to do it, and he came to my office. I always do, like, a few months out, I'll have the actors come, and we'll kind of read the script separately sure. just to see if, what they, you know, I want to see what their take is on it. And he, I remember he sat down, and Melissa was there, and he had the script, and he goes like, so should I, should I try to be funny? I said, no, Jason. I said, play this like it's one of your most serious movies ever. And he read through the script and literally everything he read, we were dying. He finished reading it, looked at me. I said, like, go home. Don't look at the script again. <laughs> Just don't do rehearse that again. Yes, exactly. anything. And then he showed up and he was killer. I, I know you're asked about this all the time about like sequels to all the films, but what is the obstacle for the spinoff or sequel for that uh, character? For Spy, it's just the studio doesn't want to do it. Really? Yeah, it's, you know. You it, have a treatment, a script, or something like you had. Like, I have, I, I have. Oh, I'm very excited about how it will start. I have, the, <laughs> I have the setup. I have the greatest setup in the world for this movie. Exactly. But it's, you know, I, I get. Look, they're on the third Kingsman movie. I love the Kingsman movies. That's the same studio. They made more money than we did, Got but it. we did not make money. We made pretty good money. We yeah. made 230 or 240 million dollars worldwide. That's pretty good on a 65 million dollar budget. Yeah. You know, we always wish it was higher, but but um, no, they just they just didn't want to do it. So <laughs> I, I, and now the moment may be passed. I don't know, but uh, I'm very proud of it. You should be. Yeah. Thanks. So I mean, the uh, again, we you know we can dig into kind of like the. I mean, a lot of the early career is, first of all, of course, the acting career, which is yeah. and and a successful acting career at that. We should say. Not I mean, you were, you were a regular on many different shows. Yeah, all got canceled the first year, but well, I was on them. You were paying actor. the bills. I was a working actor. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, both you and Judd share this thing where, like, there was a certain epiphany at some point that you clearly had to have, whether it was forced on you or not, mm. um, where you had to kind of change track. Yeah. And I'm curious, like. What you remember about that, and like, did it fo- did it refocus you on writing and directing and making you a little bit more efficient and smarter about those uh, parts of your life when you kind of gave up the dream of acting? Or is it is that narrative almost too pat? Did it, did- well, for me, it was always jumbled up because as a kid, I remember 
oh, I don't know how old I was, 10 or something, Time Magazine had a picture of Woody Allen on the cover, and it said comic genius. I was just like, wait, you can be funny and be called a genius for being comic? (laughs) So then I started watching his movies and all that, you know, and I was just like, I want to do that. Like, he writes, directs, and stars in his own movies. So that was always my goal. Yeah. So uh, when I went to USC Film School, I went as an actor, but going like, oh, as an actor, now I can learn how to do those other things, and so I'm going to make my own movies and star in them. And then... Just then after film school became a stand-up comic and then after five years of that quit and then went full-time into acting. But when I was acting and even when I was a stand-up, especially when I was acting, I was always writing scripts still. And so whatever show I'd be on, I'd write like a a spec episode for it. They don't, the writers would read it and really like it. And they're like, Oh, if we have another season, maybe we'll do this. And then we get canceled. So I couldn't. So I was always swirling around it. And as you know, when I, by the time I got to like my fifth TV series that I was a sixth or seventh lead on, um, I just went like, God, I'm so powerless as an actor because especially when you're an actor, you sign these contracts. It's a seven year contract. They own you for at least seven years, but they have it in that contract twice a season. They can fire you and not pay you anything else. So I was like, this is like not a two way street here. (laughs) So that coupled with just, you feel so out of control, but, but I was also like, but I'm making money, you know, and I'm, and I, and it's, it's fun to be an actor. I show up, they tell me how to dress and you know, as long as I don't screw up my lines, they like me. And I was on Sabrina, the teenage witch and it was a, a hit. And so I was like, Oh, good. But at the same time, I was calling producer friends of mine who had sitcoms and stuff saying, like, would you ever think about me maybe directing an episode? And they'll be like, well, it's really hard. You know, so they always kind of shut it down for me, as anyone should. I was just an actor. Um, and then when I, I finally went, I'm just going to make my own movie. So I wrote this this little independent feature called Life Sold Separately. And I took all the $30,000 I saved from the first year of Sabrina, put it into it, shot it start in it, everything. And then when we were in post-production and about to go back to Sabrina, they called me up and said, like, we're going to write you out of the show. We don't know how to write for your character anymore. That was the thing that just kicked me out of the nest. Cause I was like, you know what, if you can be on a hit show yeah. and still get fired and not have anything. So, you know, so I made that movie and it's never been released. I still have it. I hope one day I will put it out. Yeah. I'm very proud of it, yeah. but it's also stars me. So, <laughs> so that's the downside, <laughs> but Pendulette's in it. So that's cool. Um, but then, yeah, so then I kind of went into this one-year, terrible, worst year of my career thing because I was said, I'm not going to act anymore. So I was writing scripts, and I couldn't sell anything, and I had this movie, and I couldn't get in any festivals or anything. And it was when I finally got into this kind of traveling film festival where you went around the country to colleges and showed your movie. I wrote the spec script for Freaks and Geeks. Got it. So, so by the time I gave up the dream, it was like, goodbye, dream. Fuck you, dream. <laughs> You ruined my. You didn't ruin my life, but you almost ruined my life if I stayed in you. And that sounded really dirty. Um, but so, I, so yeah. I, I think for me, you know. Yeah, so now, if things pop up, yeah. uh, you know, like the, the Joel McHale show, exactly. yeah, yeah. and a lot of people hate me on that show. By the way, <laughs> is that get, true? my Twitter feed is always filled with like oh. Paul Fig. Why do they let him on? He's the worst part of the show, which just makes everybody want to put me on more. So, well, I appreciate that uh, that show, especially and R.I.P. Um, but uh, you've also exploited one of my favorites. Uh, 
in that uh, who's done a bunch of sketches with me, Joe Manganiello. Oh my God, Joe! Joe is so fucking funny. Joe is amazing. Oh my God, is he <laughs> funny? He's got such a good sense of humor about him. I've done like three or four sketches with him, and I just he he kills it. He oh just, yeah, he's amazing. He's funny. Um, so it's interesting too. Okay, so prior to Bridesmaids, okay, so you think you're all set with freaks and geeks? Not so much. Like you know, you you mm. you landed in this you know uh, famed um, phantom zone that people always talk about. Director uh, uh, hell or director. Um, uh, Director Jail. Director Jail, thank yes. you. Movie Jail. Movie yes. Jail, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a real kind of a thing, I guess. Oh, it's a terrible place. <laughs> <laughs> it's out on the interstate. Uh, <laughs> food's terrible, too. So that, that occurs, I mean, do you consider, because you're also, you had a great period of time where you're doing some fantastic TV work, and you're, again, probably making decent money and working yeah. on these top-notch shows, Office, Arrested Development, etc. Mm-hmm. Is that when you're also in movie director, hell, jail, etc.? Well, it came along because, you know, Freaks and Geeks got canceled because of low ratings, but it was this critically acclaimed show yeah. and very well thought of. But then I developed another show that didn't go, and then... What happened? Everybody want after you have a show like Freaks and Geeks. Everybody's like, we want to make a show with you. We want your voice. So then you kind of write the thing. Go here it is, and they go like, oh well, actually not this. Not they go, well, you want my voice, and so there's my voice. So I had a really hard time developing stuff, and at the same time, our old line producer Victor Shu from Freaks and Geeks was had just started producing Arrested Development. Right. He said, hey, they like you over here. Do you want to come and direct an episode? So I said, sure. So what happened is I just started directing more television, right? Which was great because you know. Other than going to film school and directing my little short film and doing the series finale for Freaks and Geeks, I hadn't really... This is a practical experience. Yeah. You're getting it. Yeah. Totally. So you go, oh, I'm going to work with a crew and all these different styles. So I loved it. It was like it was like going back to film school. But I still wanted to do movies. And so after like a couple of years after, you know, after Freaks, I took on this movie called I Am David, which I wrote and directed. And it was a more of a drama. And that just bombed horrible. I mean, like, it, like <laughs> I think Kevin Spacey had a movie that opened to like $618. I think I, I, I went like, hey, that's not bad box office, actually. It pulled an I Am David. Yeah, exactly. I mean, especially in Europe. Oh, my God. I think our box office was something like $500 or something like that. So, but here's how I knew that movie was going to bomb. You know, not when I was making it. I was like, who wouldn't want to see this movie about a kid, a young child who's brought up in a communist labor camp. So right there. Always that's, chasing the dollar. Always B. going for the Gold. obvious. Exactly. <laughs> but we did a test screening of it out in Irvine, California. <laughs> and screening went great. I mean, like, the audience was cheering. They were clapping, crying, all this stuff. I mean, it was just like, we got a hit. We got a hit movie. Yeah. So they're walking out, and I see these two people at the door who run the screening, and they're handing each person a little white envelope. And I go, what's that? And they go, well, whenever we were trying to recruit the audience and we kind of showed them the, what it was about, nobody wanted to go. So we had to promise them $5 if they came to see the movie. It's like, well, I we're not going to do well. That's not a sustainable business model. I'm not an expert. but <laughs> That does not work. So that hurt. That that kind of started to creak the, the door to movie jail closed a little bit. But then a couple of years later, I was like, well, I want to do a studio film. I've heard studio films yeah. are so hard to do and the politics are terrible. Let's just do it. Yeah. Well, when you're a TV director... You kind of have one place you can go, uh, and it's called Family Films. Right. And so that's the only ones you can get because no other directors want them. Right. And there's this one. It was based on this American Life story called Unaccompanied Minors, and I thought it was really fun. And... You know, went into it with a gusto and did fun rewrites on it. And it's all, you know, and it's a great second layer story about divorced kids, you know, getting stuck at this airport on their way between their two families and, and all that. And, and it was really touching. We put a lot of second and third layers into it. 
We get a week into production, and the head of the studio suddenly has some epiphany that he's, you know, he's a divorced dad, that we're being terrible to divorced parents. We are sending this horrible message that divorced parents are terrible, which was not the message at all. Uh, so they shut us down <laughs> and said, you got to rewrite the script to take all that stuff out. Right. So then all that stuff came out. So then it was just this, you know, I think it's still kind of cute, but yeah. it, it, like a romp, just a romp. But... This is 2006, so we're just a few years after 9-11. It's about kids running amok in an airport and, and, and screwing around with TSA and out, outwitting the TSA. So, a just fundamental like, flaw, perhaps. Yes. So just like with the, my white envelope um, uh, moment with that was, I put, you know, I help with the marketing. Like, we got to have a crazy, you know, a, you know, trailer with all kinds of physical comedy and things and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I go and sit, and it's before some Nick Park movie, and a full audience. And moms and kids, and on comes the art trailer. I'm like, oh boy! And it's playing. And at one point, halfway through, like all these TSA guys like trip and they fall over each other. And this mom behind me goes like, oh my! <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, we are so dead! Like, and then, and then, then the second nail in the coffin was I was hanging around the box office opening weekend just to see if people would buy the tickets, and. In the same weekend we were open, Aragon, the dragon movie, and Charlotte's Web were uh, opening or were out. And this mom comes up with all these kids, and she goes, all right, kids, you, you want to see the movie about the dragons or the talking spider? And I was like, well, yeah, so clearly. Or, <laughs> or a Disney, bad t- Disney TV movie with kids running around an airport. So, and that bomb, and then the door to movie jail slammed shut and locked. <laughs> we're only focusing on the negatives in your career right now, the sad parts. No. But I mean, like, and obviously, we, you know, we, sadly, we don't have time to go into everything. But of course, then bridesmaids comes, and suddenly everything changes, and opportunities come around. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess I want to jump just again, please, for for, for time constraints. Uh, you see the poster I have over here, so you know I'm a Ghostbusters fan. Yes, v- Vigo, there you, Vigo. V- Vigo Ghostbusters two fan. I, I think well it's done. underrated. It's very fun. <laughs> I like it too. Um, and I love yours. I watched it again the other day, just Thanks, so like Josh. it was the first time, uh, probably since the the year it was released that I saw it, and, mm-hmm. and it holds up, and it, it holds up in a way where like you can now appreciate it without all the baggage yeah, that all the was bullshit. Yeah, exactly. It, it, which was so insane. I mean, in some ways, like it feels like that film predicted, I feel like, Donald Trump's election. We were, we were, I'm telling you, we were part and parcel with that. I'm kind of serious, right? I mean, like... Dead serious. 2016 was a terrible year for women. Yeah, the misogyny online, the trolling, everything. I would go, every time I'd get hammered, and I'd get hammered constantly, I I always, on Twitter, always go back and see who wrote me something mean, and 99.9% of the time it had MAGA, had... Trump had something, you know, like that. So it was all, it was all the same dudes. Well, it did... You're proud of that film as well as yeah, well you should be. I'm hugely proud. I, I mean, is there anything separating all that stuff out of it about the film itself mm-hmm. that I mean, was it too expensive? Was there an approach thematically or whatever that mm-hmm. you feel could have changed um the the outcome, the reception, the box office. Well, no, I'm, I, I honestly, I stand by the film as a film itself. Yeah. It was an expensive film, but half, of, I mean, a lot of that expense was old producing deals, old rights deals. So, right. I mean, that before the cameras rolled, we were in the hole on that in, in that way. But no, I, what I the things I would change would be how I did some things around it. One is I would never have taken on the trolls, and I didn't do it for a year and a half. And then right after we wrapped production, I had a moment of weakness, and I fired it 
fired out at two of these guys who were just up my ass and so mean to my cast. And they only had 90 followers. Why didn't I block them? I was right. like, like I like the Democratic. I want to hear everybody's voice. Well, it's stupid. So I shouldn't have done that because then the minute I did that, I was a villain and it was all over the place. Um, and they were, you know, whatever. But then... And I don't, I don't even think we did this, but somehow then people started kind of making it into a political statement to go see our movie, right. meaning like, go support. If you care about women, go see this movie. And for an audience in the middle of the summer, they're like, I don't want to make a fucking political statement. Right. I just want to go see a movie. I want to see a comedy. And then the downvoting of us, of our trailer, which I never liked that trailer. Um, we fought against that trailer. Uh, um, but, you know, it got downvoted a million times, whatever. So we were the, you know, the, the, most disliked trailer in YouTube history. The media never said Ghostbusters without, in the very next sentence, saying the most disliked trailer in YouTube history. Again, if you're an audience member who's got like a few bucks to spend, you go like, oh, Ghostbusters, oh, wait, that's the movie that everybody hates. It must be terrible. So I I don't, honestly, I don't think I would have done anything much different. I mean, look, as a a director, you always go like, oh, I wish we had kind of fixed that. But nothing wholesale, not major things. No, no, not at all. The the film ended with kind of the post-credits tease was uh, Leslie Jones' character Hmm. uh, hearing Zool, the name Zool. What was, (laughs) did you have like a plan of like what that was going to manifest yeah, how that was we, yeah, manifest. We, we had lots of stuff we wanted to do we were all, we were all excited <laughs> what was gonna happen can you tease me anything uh, yeah maybe it'll happen still <laughs> I, I mean i definitely wanted us to go to another country because when we were doing especially doing the press tour the the international press tour every country the reporters would come with these drawings or or you know artist renderings of that country's ghosts mm. and every country has these really wild like ghost stories and and kind of ghost characters that they scare kids with or like keep keep people in line with or whatever and it was like oh my god we gotta like like yeah. I, I really love the idea of like the ghostbusters going to like you know asia you know somewhere so yeah so there's a, a lot of fun stuff that we could have done um and it's i think it's really sad i mean i'm really happy that idw keeps the comics going you know they have both the, the crossed over one where they brought the old team and the new team together in one comic because they had right. this kind of portal. But then they're also doing the answer to the call with just my ladies where they're doing yeah. my own team. And so that's nice. Short of getting to make more movies about it. It does yeah. feel like one of those films, though, even in the couple of years it's been out, that is, I feel like, starting to, like, people are watching it again without the baggage and I yeah. feel like there is gonna it's gonna hold up I get great feedback all, yeah. I mean people write me all the time you know the, the greatest moment of my career I have to say after all just getting hammered and hammered for all that time was when Ghostbusters won the Nickelodeon Kids Choice for favorite movie over Rogue One and one of the Captain America movies and so you know after three years of do white dudes telling me you know like uh, thanks for ruining my childhood uh, like you go like oh I guess actually look there's all you know I we actually helped out with some kids childhoods you seem like a, a perfect candidate given that you've been able to obviously handle comedy as, as well as any uh, filmmaker out there and someone that can handle a big budget and and, and do kind of an effects related film for in especially in the wake of the guardians films and thor ragnarok of of handling one of those mm-hmm. is that something that you have conversations about that you've that's um, is on the list I'm, I'm, I'm open to it i just have to my problem is i'm not that I, I really appreciate superhero movies, but I don't. In I don't love not, them. Yeah. Well, my my problem with them is I can never figure out this. I can't get. I can't figure out the stakes, because if a guy gets punched through a building and the building falls on him and he can get up and shake his head, then I'm like, I don't know. 
what I'm kind of rooting for with right. you. That's always the problem with someone like Superman, but those these godly figures that are like, okay, yeah. What? I mean, I loved like you know uh, the first Iron Man. I loved because like here's it's a human guy, and he yeah. actually I know why he's he has superpowers. Right, he's like, <laughs> right. He made a heart for himself that I can get behind, yeah. and then he's so smart he builds all this other stuff that I get. Batman the same way. Like right. okay, Batman's a rich guy who invents all this cool stuff that I understand. That's why I loved Ghostbusters. I go these are just scientists who invented this stuff they're still human you, yeah. you still they could still get cut by a knife you know they can but they have all this they're, they're smarter than we are that well, i respond to. so so hypothetically in my hypothetical josh Horowitz universe because i could see you being on a short list or something like this mm-hmm. guardians 3 <laughs> needs well, a filmmaker i know well i mean i would never take anything away from another filmmaker right. you know and i mean you know you can you can whatever moralize about what what james wrote and look right. it, like, I, I don't make those kind of jokes I don't like those kind of jokes, but still, you know, that, that's James's, that's James's franchise. Um, you are, is the next film going to be this one? That's this, uh, Christmas kind of uh, yeah, thing co-written called, by Emma Thompson called last Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. So, when Emma Thompson sends you a script, <laughs> yes. you snap too. <laughs> uh, what can you say about that one in terms of like what, what boxes does it check for you and what's, uh, yeah, it's lovely. I mean, my favorite movie of all time is, uh, it's a wonderful life, you know, and, yeah. and with unaccompanied minors, you know, we tried to make a Christmas perennial, uh, and it occasionally shows somewhere. <laughs> but but this one just checks every box for me because it's very it, it's funny and it's sweet and it's got a beautiful message to it, but it also shoots all in London. So it's like a love letter to London, and I'm a big Anglophile, so I get to shoot in London and show off London the way I want to. So and it just and it's it's just another genre that yeah. it's like kind of the uplifting Christmas movie for lack of a better better term so uh, yeah so I'm very excited about Do you it th- and, and finally like we talked about some of these kind of uh, talents that you've utilized in different ways I mean do you think about when you see an actor on screen do you kind of put them in like the secret Paul Feig journal of like I need to exploit that talent in a different way oh like, yeah like yeah. the Manganello, like the Chris oh, Hemsworth yeah. etc is totally. there anybody that you're eyeing that you want to put the uh... well nobody can say <laughs> out loud but, no I mean there's so many honestly there's so many people because you know what it, it, it really Sometimes it depends on just, oh, I want to take that person and kind of subvert the public's expectation of them. But for me, it's more finding the property or or inventing the property and then going like, oh, I know who this would be great for and tailoring it to them that way. But, you know, it's it's just really fun to take people who other people don't expect are going to do something and make them do it. Yeah. Are you still exploiting the general meeting to meet the people that you're, uh, not as much as I should be. I know I should be. (laughs) This is like your make a wish foundation. I know. You can just do whatever you want. I know. Exactly. I know. Actually, there's some musicians I actually want to take meetings with. Um, yeah. Camilla, uh, Cabrillo. Oh yeah. Your best friend from the VMAs. Yes, exactly. I just like her. I I keep, I walk around the city and she has this like sketchers ad that's on all the, and it's just, it's so adorable. I'm like, I want to meet her. She seems, she seems like she could be actually really lovely on the, uh, you know, in a movie. So. There you go. Her and there Jason Statham in the next. Oh my uh, God. That's it. That's it. You've done it. We've made progress here oh, today. Oh, Josh. Um, Will you produce, please? I'm in. I'm in all yeah, the way. Uh, congratulations on a, a wonderful career that has much uh, uh, to come, I mean, including a simple favor, which everybody should check out. Um, as I said, it's. Uh, it still feels, as you said, like a Paul Feig film, which is, I think, a credit to you and, you. and, and your diversity behind the camera. Um, but it's unexpected in some interesting ways, too. So um, and it, it's check fun. it out. It's yeah. fun. I, it's, I call it a thriller. It's a fun right. thriller. So right. uh, you'll go. You'll have fun and you'll get all you'll check all the boxes. There you go. Uh, you're welcome here anytime, man. Good to see you. Thanks, Josh. So fun. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, 
confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. Ha, ha, ha.